Good morning, and welcome to another episode of Crime Over Coffee. We're your hosts. I'm Abby. And I'm Erica. And today, I'm going to be telling you guys about Hugh Burton. Uh, I am drinking some fire department coffee today who used to be one of our lovely sponsors still 10 out of 10 recommend their coffee it's fantastic speaking of them i saw that they had a french toast coffee come out and i need to try that (gasps) that sounds also for those of you that do like coffee fire department coffee is now in kroger and they're about to be in walmart as well so now you don't just have to order online if you guys, I highly recommend it. It's very good. Yeah, I get it. Actually, they're at my grocery, Giant Eagle as well. It was on sale last week for $10 a bag. So I grabbed a few. Yeah, absolutely. Great coffee. Great people. Yes. Oh, yeah. They're fantastic people. And today I'm drinking a hot hazelnut coffee. Hazelbutt. And because, yeah. And because it's that kind of day, I'm also drinking a coconut berry Red Bull. <laughs> Jesus. This is my fourth cup of coffee. Only one Red Bull, though. So I'm thriving. <laughs> so hopefully this episode comes out okay and not in fast forward speed. Oh, <laughs> see, the good thing is your brain might be on overload. Mine's on underload today, so I'll slow you down. <laughs> we'll even out. It'll be perfect. Yes. My cue, which I forgot and Erica had to point to me, is to say, <laughs> grab whatever you're drinking and let's dive on in. <laughs> This is our first time. I'm so sorry. We will continue on with our content for this week's episode shortly, but first we wanted to take a moment to let you know about an opportunity to listen to even more Crime Over Coffee content. By signing up for our Patreon, you can receive ad-free episodes and additional content. To check out this opportunity and sign up for the Crime Over Coffee Patreon, visit www.patreon.com slash crimeovercoffeepod. Thank you again for all of your support. On January 3rd, 1989, 16-year-old Hugh Burton came home from a typical day at school just before 3 o'clock in the afternoon. When he got home, he noticed that the television was on and his mom's belongings were on the floor, but he thought maybe she had just run to the store. At the current moment in time, his dad, who also lived in the home, was out of the country on, I believe, a work trip. So he is not home for very long. The phone rings. He answers it. It's a friend of his that's saying, hey, do you want to come over and hang out with me at my apartment? And Hugh decides that he's going to go hang out with her. And so he leaves and then he gets home about almost three hours later. So around 540 in the evening. And when he gets back, he notices that the television is still on. His mom's stuff is all over the floor. And it just he's like, "Okay, maybe she hasn't been home. This is interesting. So he goes and looks for her and walks around the apartment, ends up in his parents' bedroom to look for her. And when he gets in there, he discovers a horrific scene and sees that his 59-year-old mother, Kaziah Burton, had been stabbed to death. He immediately calls 911 and reports everything to the police. They show up and they see that Kaziah had been stabbed in the neck and was face down in her nightgown on her bed. They also note that her underwear had been removed, so they said 
So this obviously suggested sexual assault. She also had a telephone cord wrapped around one of her wrists. And then, as I mentioned before, she had stuff kind of like strewn all over the house. It was all over the living room floor. Her purse had been dumped. And so police immediately start to investigate. At this time, I mean, it was 1989. So a lot of investigation tactics and DNA attack, like all the different things had not been fully developed to the extent that they are now. So they weren't able to determine a time of death for her. They believed it had happened sometime. They knew that it had happened sometime between the morning and the time that Hugh got home at 540. And that was just because he had been there in the morning and had gone to school. So they also said that they felt like she knew her killer because in theory, she let them into the home. The other thing that was interesting was that her vehicle, which was a Honda, was missing. And so police marked that as stolen, but they were not having any luck finding it. So investigators, you know, typically would focus on the significant other, which would be Hugh's father. But as I had mentioned, he was away in another country. And so there was, he had a really solid alibi. And so instead, they decided to focus on the next person that would be the closest to Keziah, her son, Hugh. And Hugh did not have any sort of criminal history. The main reasons that they were suspicious of him was because he said that he had come home from school, as I'd mentioned, just before three o'clock. But he told investigators that he came home at 2.47 p.m. And investigators were like, well, if he's giving us an exact time, he's probably trying to come up with some sort of alibi and it's a little suspicious and how old is Hugh again he's 16 okay yeah that is I can see where that would raise some red flags like it's a little too rehearsed and that's how investigators saw it you know a lot of times we estimate times however there have been certain things in my life where I've come home from something or I just happen to notice the time and it just kind of sticks with me a little bit more than others especially if it's a routine thing and if he gets home from school at the same time every day or around the same time, that could also be part of the reason that he knew. And then I know you said her like purse was kind of shaken out. Was there stuff missing? I didn't see whether or not anything was specifically missing. And at the time, police did not believe that it was a robbery gone wrong. They were thinking that it was most likely somebody went in there to murder her and then just happened to also take some of her stuff, including her vehicle. Assuming that her purse was dumped out to take the keys would be my assumption. Sure. That makes sense. The other thing police found suspicious was that Hugh told them he had been at school all day. But when they contacted the school, they were told by his first period teacher that he had not been in class that morning. And so police were like, "Okay, well, you're at at least lying about the fact that you or about the time that you went to school in the morning. So on January 5th, just two days after Kaziah's murder, they brought Hugh in for questioning. They ended up interrogating him for three hours. And as I have mentioned a couple times, his father was out of the country. Remember, Hugh's 16 years old, so he's still a minor. He makes a request twice to be able to talk to his father because he is obviously scared. His mom just was murdered. They're thinking that it's him. Maybe it was him at this point. Like we don't, they don't know, right? But he's obviously scared. And they were like, no, you you cannot talk to your dad, which I don't know the specific rules about 
the 80s, 1989, I assume it was still... I don't know when it came into place that a minor wasn't supposed to be spoken to without their parent. But also it's a murder investigation, so I know that's different. Yeah, and I guess I wonder too in which ways it overlaps asking for a parent to be there versus, you know, like asking for a lawyer. Like you don't have to talk. And I assume that was already in play in 89. That's not that long ago. I really need to get a list of like Mm -hmm. when all these specific laws came into place and just like tape them above where I record because we go through this a lot. I don't remember. It might have been in play at this point, but either way, his requests were denied. And so the police were like, you can't talk to your dad, but listen, here's what we know. We know you lied to us about what time you went to school in the morning. We also know where you were the afternoon that your mother was killed. They told him that he had been with a 13-year-old girl who was a friend of his. And they were like, we know that the two of you had sex. And that's statutory rape. And you could go to jail for that. So you might as well confess to this. Oh, it is at 16? He was 16. The girl was 13. Okay. I guess I thought like the age was 17 or 18 in most states. I didn't know it went down to 16 for that. I guess it is. I don't even... I I guess it is. This was in New York. So I don't know. Oh, Okay. But I was thinking, because 16 is the age of consent. That's true. So if it's under 16. So she's not consenting because. Correct. Because she's 13. I mean, not that I'm opposed to that justification at all. I'm just saying I was, I didn't think it was that low, but I also don't know. I don't have a stronghold on all the legalities because there's so many and it varies. It varies so much per state and then Mm -hmm. per year and then per situation. Like it's hard to try to keep track of all of them, but that's the play that they went for you know sure either go to jail for murdering your mom or go to jail for statutory rape and so hugh ends up writing and writing down a confession and then being recorded confessing to murdering his mom he says you know i was high on crack cocaine and i killed my mother during a fight this sounds like one of those cases that you'd see on like there's a show called like the interrogation tapes or something and it's like when they get confessions and it's under a means that is problematic it sounds like it's shaping up to be one that would be on one of those episodes absolutely they they very much are pushing along and encouraging his words part of his confession is him saying that the reason he killed his mother and the reason that they had gotten in a fight was because he as i mentioned had been high but then had to pay his drug dealer and they he had to pay his debt with him and so he was like in order to pay it, I killed my mom and I stole her car. And then I gave the drug dealer her car. And that's his confession. That makes sense. <laughs> so, Hugh is eventually arrested and charged with murder. Now on Netflix, inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman, comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. So six days after Hugh confesses, police in Westchester County, New York, stop a man driving a Honda and and they're able to determine that this is actually Kaziah's Honda. And so they're obviously very curious as to who's driving this vehicle because based on their working theory, Hugh murdered his mom and then sold the car to a drug dealer. So they're like, okay, well, maybe we'll get a, 
at least arrest a drug dealer or maybe we'll find out more information about the murder. So I stopped the car and the driver is Emmanuel Green. And Emmanuel actually is a neighbor of the Burton family. I read in a couple spots that he was actually one of like a tenant of theirs in the apartment below theirs. But I also read in some that he was just a neighbor. So I don't know if he was actually one of their tenants, like if they were landlords or if he just lived in the same apartment complex. But he lived right down stairs from them. And at one point in time, police had actually interviewed him really early on in the investigation just to see if he'd heard anything. And he had said no. But at this time, when they arrest or when they pulled him over for driving her car, they brought him in and asked him more questions because now there was a lot more questions. And he they realized that he has a criminal record that includes multiple convictions of rape and robbery. He also then says, okay, I did not kill Kaziah on my own. I was a part of it, but it was Hugh's idea and he came and asked me if I would help kill her. And he was like, it was my idea to make it look like an intruder had come in and stolen stuff. But ultimately it was Hugh that had killed her. He just helped with the cover up supposedly. Is kind of okay. the story that he's going with. So Emmanuel is charged with larceny, possession of stolen property, and hindering prosecution, but he's not charged as an accomplice to the murder, which I find interesting. Yeah, that doesn't seem right to me. Well, because he straight up confesses that he helped with the murder is what he's saying, right? And they're like, we're just going to ignore that. <laughs> right. Like, let's look up the definition of an accomplice. Yes. And they, yeah. So Hugh ends up almost immediately after he gives his confession in the first place, withdrawing his confession. And he's like, I was coerced by police. I I do not murder my mom. I take it back. And so he, in his pretrial motions and his hearings and everything, he tried to have it suppressed and tried to just get rid of that confession altogether. But it, it was not working. And, and so... Almost two years later, in 1991, Hugh's trial actually begins. The unfortunate thing about this is Emmanuel, who, as I mentioned, said that he had a part of it, had actually passed away in that two-year time period. I read somewhere that he was killed, so I don't know if he was murdered. I tried to look up more about it, but I didn't see anything. So either way, he was no longer able to testify or to be a part of the trial. So Hugh's attorney, William Kunzler wanted to try to get an expert witness to testify about false confessions and to testify about a 16-year-old boy having to be interrogated by police while grieving the death of his mother and how that would have an impact on him and could co- potentially cause him to falsify his confession. But at the time in 1989, there was very, very minimal information about false confessions and why people confess when they didn't actually commit the crime. And so the the judge that was in charge of this trial was like, I'm not allowing that. We're not d- going to discuss the fact that he could have possibly falsely confessed because that's not something that happens, which is really unfortunate and actually leads to Hugh being convicted on September 25th, 1991 of second degree murder and fourth degree criminal possession of a weapon. And he was sentenced to 15 years to life in prison. You know, I know we've talked about it, but I'm always, the sentencing is always so varied. <laughs> and I sometimes wonder if that sentencing is as a result of, you know, the 
crime itself, like the circumstances, like if there is a little bit of like, hmm, there's some question that maybe, you know, some doubt, even though there's not supposed to be when you convict someone, obviously. But I wonder if that has anything to do with it sometimes. I I would agree. I think it, it is so interesting because we see some murder cases where people just automatically get life. And then we see these other murder cases where second degree, first degree, either way. But he, this kid is a 16 year old i'm assuming they had to have tried him as an adult is being sentenced to 15 years to life in prison and so i think part of it i mean it is related to the crime itself but i think it's also just partly up to the judge you know like how much how does the judge see it do they see it as a, a really wrong crime to commit and so they're like okay well i have zero tolerance for this so i'm gonna give you like the max sentencing possible or are you going to have a judge who's taking other things into consideration whatever that may be i'm not justifying murder in any way shape or form but it is it is so wild that sometimes like judges are seeing murder cases come through and they're like yeah 10 years is enough i only justify murder when it's me you know some of those happy murders those are mike's favorites mike you know what we're talking about we're gonna fast forward from 1991 to 2009 when hugh is actually paroled after serving 18 years in prison so he didn't even get the minimal sentence he ended up spending three additional years in there it was at this time that the innocence project stepped in to work on hugh's case and they wanted to really investigate it to see if there was a chance that hugh could have been innocent because there's a lot of things that, as we've mentioned, haven't really added up. And so they refer his case to Steve Drizzen, who is an attorney. And in 2009, there's actually some research and information about false confessions. And so Steve is actually an expert on false confessions. And so they bring him in and they're like, we need you to look at this case. And he's like, absolutely. I'm also going to bring in Laura Cohen, who is an attorney at Rutgers Law School. And he's like, we're going to work together on this case. And then they start investigating things. And in 2013, the Innocence Project also joins the team officially because initially they had received the referral and then they'd sent it to Steve. But by this point, there was some information. And so the Innocence Project joins. And then in 2016... The Bronx County District Attorney, Darcel Clark, also joins the team and starts a conviction integrity unit who specific case that they're focusing on is Hugh's case. So there are a lot of people working together to determine if Hugh is innocent of his mother's murder. And unfortunately, at this part point, like I said, he's already out of prison, so he's already served the time, but they can at least get the charges dismissed and get that off of his record and hopefully get him some compensation correct so they spend two years studying as a team his confession i mean ultimately there's a lot more time because it starts in 2009 when steve starts investigating it and they're all working together and they're looking at his specific confession they're looking at the way the confession was obtained and how sketchy that was they're looking at all the contradictions between what he said in his confession and what the evidence actually shows they're also looking at Emmanuel and his confession that he gave and they're putting everything together and looking at it on a blank page with no prejudices. They're just they're coming in completely clean to look at this. 
and they do find some really interesting information. I'm going to kind of go through a lot of stuff, not in any specific order, just different information that they found in their investigation. One of the first things that they found is the initial examination of Kaziah's body at the time of Hugh's confession suggested that there was one single fatal wound so violent that it had gone through one side of her neck and out the other. But when Hugh confessed, his confession was that he had stabbed his mother with a serrated knife and then she fell on the bed. But when they go back through and examine the body in the crime scene further, they actually discover that she had been stabbed twice and it wasn't just one straight shot through. So what we're learning is that if Hugh said that he stabbed her once straight through because that's what the police believed, the police most likely coerced him into saying one straight stab. But they discover that it was two stabbings and it was with a smooth bladed knife, not a serrated knife, which seems like something you probably wouldn't get wrong. Maybe not the serrated part and the smooth part, but the amount of times that you stab somebody, I think you would remember that. Yeah, and I mean, there's no... I feel like unlikely it would just be a coincidence that what the police believed at the time is what he ended up saying exactly, even though it wasn't right. Correct. The other thing that they found was that Hugh said that when he had attacked his mom, all he did was stab her. But he never mentioned the fact that she that he really fought her in any other way. But Kaziah had actually been beaten as well and had injuries from that. The other thing that Hugh said in his confession was that after he stabbed his mother, he dropped the knife on the floor. But the knife that they found at the scene was behind the bed. And when they tested the flooring to see if there's any traces of blood, they found none. And you think that if she had been beaten and they took him in pretty much right after, he would have had some type of markings on his hands from that. You'd think that there'd be some sort of physical, yeah, something. I, I think that they were kind of thinking in their minds, you know, if he murdered her in the morning before he went to school, when he missed first period, then when he got home, you know, he was home, he had plenty of time to clean it up. And then he could have gone to his friend's house and then come back and quote unquote discovered it. I also don't know. And I'm assuming that the only reason that they checked with his first period teacher was. And so I think that they assumed that he hadn't been at school the entire day because I think at the time they only did attendance at the beginning of the day and just assumed that you were there. I don't think it was attendance mm-hmm. done in every single class. The other thing that didn't add up is, like I had said, his mom, Kaziah, had one wrist tied with a phone cord. And so he said that he bound one of his mom's wrists. But investigators later on, when they're reexamining this, they're like, okay. That, I mean, they she was found with only one wrist tied, but that wouldn't restrain a person. And so they assumed that she'd actually been tied twice and then the one cord had just been unwrapped. The other thing that they noted that was interesting was Hugh's confession was filled with like a lot of weird words that they didn't think a 16 year old boy would be using. So when he was talking about different things, he said he was, quote unquote, stimulated on cocaine. He was, quote unquote, associating with a friend and quote unquote proceeding up a road it was just some certain words that they're like i don't know that a 16 year old boy would necessarily use these and so they're looking through this and they're like this seems once again like police are coercing him into saying what they want him to say simulated on them drugs yeah nobody says that unless you're a very technical (laughs) medical person or you're using it in a 
professional document. That's an interesting point that I don't know has come up a ton in our cases is like looking at that kind of language. You know, I that's something I wouldn't even think about, but that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I'm glad that, you know, I mean, that's why they're professionals and they were brought in because they were able to notice things like that. Something else that I was kind of holding back to tell you is that when they're looking back at the confession, they also look into the detectives that interrogated Hugh and they notice that three months prior to this homicide investigation, they had actually produced false confessions in a different case. And so those two suspects were acquitted at trial, but the coercive techniques that they used were the exact same that they had used on Hugh. And none of this was initially brought up to Hugh's attorney. It was held back, which I feel like should have been one, a red flag Two, why do they have their job still, especially the job of interrogating people without any sort of oversight. I've seen that before in like wrongful convictions and stuff where like, you know, an expert or someone gets fired or in trouble for falsifying evidence or information or this false confessions. And it seems like, and maybe there is a practice now, but there should be a practice where they go back and review automatically like all the cases they've been involved with because there's no way they're just doing that once. I, and I think that they do nowadays because there were, I think of that girl, I think it was a girl who was like a forensic investigator. And she, I think it was hair. She looked at hair and compared, like under a microscope, compared two strands of hair and said that they were the same. And that they used that during a couple trials. Right. They're like the characteristics match or something. Yeah. And so then they looked back and there were multiple cases of hers like that. And there were a few of them that were overturned because they went back and looked and they're like, you can't base a decision of guilt or not based on the hair looking similar. There's another one like that. It was, I think I had to do with blood splatter. I think it was, it was either in the case that was um, surrounding the documentary to the staircase, or maybe it was in making a murderer series. I can't remember which, but they had found someone who was testifying as an expert and they were like, this is not accurate. <laughs> yeah. And so I think that it's more of a practice now to go back and review that. I, I, feel like it's something that we should have a position for like there should be multiple people whose jobs are solely just to go back and like you said review these Mm -hmm. something else abby that they find when they go back and look at all this stuff is that if you remember correctly i i mentioned that hugh's teacher had said he wasn't in first period class shortly after she had said that she ended up double checking things and noticed that he had been in class that morning oh my gosh and she actually went and told the detectives that he was in class and they just left it out they're like that's not an important thing and they didn't tell Hugh they didn't tell his attorney I mean I'm sure Hugh told his attorney you know like I was in class but yeah she actually went and told them that she was wrong and police still just did nothing about it not to mention you could even like further confirm that by checking with the students like not the due diligence was not done there no not even slightly also like the fact that after she came back and said that they just blatantly ignored it mm-hmm. that's sketchy and wrong and not to mention illegal i'm sure the ciu investigation team that i had mentioned before also went through and was looking through stuff and they found a manual statements to the police And when Emmanuel spoke to the police, he told them that he had bound 
both of Kazaya's wrists with the telephone cord, and which was not how her body had been found. However, it was how they thought the body was most likely how she was murdered. And so they're like, well, that's interesting. Emmanuel also told police that he removed the knife from her neck, but then he also at one other point said, no, actually, Hugh removed the knife from her neck. And Emmanuel said that he told Hugh to get rid of the murder weapon and then he put a steak knife near her body to make it look like that was what had been used. But what they're assuming is that Emmanuel actually is the one that killed Kazaya and then got rid of his knife because it was his and it would have linked him to the crime. The thing that the the CIU noted was that Hugh had confessed pretty early on to the police and they had arrested him and were ready to charge him. And so they were looking for stuff mainly to fit the scenario that they already had. So when they found Emmanuel with the car and they arrested him and they interrogated him, they weren't looking for evidence. They were looking for supporting points for their theory that they had and for the confession that they already had. So they have all this information and the CIU goes to the judge on January 16th, 2019. So this is 10 years after he's been paroled and basically yeah, in 30 years since his mom was murdered and they submit a recommendation for dismissal of charges. And very shortly later on January 24th, 2019, Judge Stephen L. Barrett of the Supreme Court for Bronx County dismissed the convictions and sentences for Hugh after he had carried a wrongful conviction for approximately 28 years, which is such a long time. And also highly unfortunate that this all came about after he had already served 18 years in prison. I will say that the CIU, what they had gone in, and I'm going to read this quote because I can't even begin to really change the wording of this. So they did so on the basis of, quote, new scientific and scholarly evidence on the risk factors that contribute to false confession, the information about the false confessions in the Koss and Parker cases, and additional details prior, including prior criminal history, end quote. And this was mainly because they had done research into false confessions and they had a lot more information backing it and supporting this theory that they were able to be like, no, this is why he would have confessed the way that he did. After Hugh, I, I do have some positive things about Hugh. So after he was paroled, he started working for an elevator repair company. And when he was in the courtroom after his ruling, I'm going to give a quote from him. He said, quote, it's been a long, long journey, and I'm thankful we've reached this point. I stand here for that 16-year-old boy who didn't have anyone to protect him and the adults that didn't protect him at that time, end quote. And that just breaks my heart because he was just a kid at the time, a kid who had lost his mother and was probably really confused and scared and sad. And he didn't really have anybody in his court. I will be honest, I didn't really find much about his dad. So I don't know where his dad stood on this, if his dad supported him or if he didn't. I know that much. Another person that really supported him, and I have the article linked in our sources, and this is Liam Boylan Pett, who works for World Athletics. He actually wrote an article about Hugh, and so I'm just going to talk about that a little bit. He had heard about Hugh through Laura Cohen, which was one of the individuals who helped with proving his innocence, and he actually went on to develop a friendship with Hugh. 
so they met for the first time in 2015. And when they met, you know, they didn't really talk much about the case. They mainly just got to know each other as friends. And when they met, Hugh was talking about one of his favorite things that he had actually started while he was in prison. And that was running. And so he would run around the prison yard and that was just something that he said made him feel free while he was there and something that really helped pass the time. You know, that's a long time to be in prison for something that especially that you didn't commit. So he would talk about his love for running. He would talk about his love for music. He and that was something that Liam was able to connect with him about. And so they went on to develop a good friendship. And Liam was really supportive of Hugh throughout this whole time. And he actually was one of the individuals that Hugh had asked to be at his trial when his charges were dismissed. And so he was there supporting him for that. And in 2016, so this was before Hugh was acquitted, he had actually participated in the New York City Marathon, which he was really excited for because in prison it said that he had been watching the marathon and that was always like a dream of his and a goal of his to be able to obtain and to actually run it but in 2019 he was actually this was after he was exonerated and he was actually able to run the new york city marathon as a free man in just over five hours and 52 minutes which sounds not like something i would ever do but it's just exciting to be able to see some of his dreams come true and some of the things that he's worked for actually coming to into play, you know? So in July of 2020, he did file a claim for compensation with the New York Court of Claims. And in October of that year, he filed a lawsuit against New York and its police department. The lawsuit was settled in June of 2021 and Hugh was paid $11 million for his wrongful conviction. Once again, no amount of money is ever going to make those 18 years of his life come back or the thoughts and the feelings and the everything that surrounds his mother's death and his conviction. But it at least gives him something to try to compensate for the time that he was there and try to make his life a little bit easier now that he is a free man. Thanks to listening to this week's episode of Crime Over Coffee. You can find us on Instagram at Crime Over Coffee or on Facebook at Crime Over Coffee Podcast, where all of our photo and video content for each episode can be found. You can also email us your thoughts and case suggestions at crimeovercoffeepod at outlook.com. All of our sources can be found in the show notes for each episode. If you would like, you can support us by going to anchor.fm slash crimeovercoffee. You can also support us by recommending us to friends and family, giving us a good review on Apple Podcast or subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.